Welcome back, everybody. Well, last week we made it through the first half of the Lord's Prayer um, and the presentation entitled The King and His Kingdom. So this week our goal is to make it through the second half. And just by way of quick review, you remember that we have two versions of the Lord's Prayer in both Luke and in Matthew. And also we have uh, a slightly more extended version in the Didache written in the end of the, at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. And we suggested several different types of divisions. Um, both in Luke and in Matthew, there seems to be a broad two-part division. That is a division between requests to God using the uh, second person, the you petitions here, may your name be hallowed, may your kingdom come, and then in Matthew, may your will be done on earth as in heaven. And then you move to these the series of um, us petitions, give us bread, forgive us for our sins, do not lead us into um, temptation or into tests. And you can see there's a difference um, between the Matthean and Lucan versions. Uh, Matthew's um, more elaborated, and we talked about some of the reasons for that last week. Now, before we talk about the last um, several petitions, what was our basic approach last week? We talked about the king and his kingdom, but what's the kingdom approach that we've that we've applied to this particular Lord's Prayer? It's really the approach that that a lot of scholars think is appropriate for all of Jesus' teaching and preaching, and indeed the theology of the New Testament. So what sort of approach did we apply to this? Um, Trying to apply the Bible's own categories to biblical teaching. Sort of the inbreaking of the kingdom that Jesus is is the beginning of part of the inbreaking and and miracles aren't so much um, you know and his actions and miracles aren't so much like an upset of the natural law but rather a manifestation of what is yet to come yes exactly right so Jesus announces the kingdom and the kingdom is already manifest has already come in him in his person And so his words, his actions, are a manifestation of the kingdom. The beginning of the kingdom, which will then be in its consummate form again in the future. And this was the great surprise for the disciples in Jesus' own ministry, but then even for the early church. Oh, we thought that the kingdom was going to come all at once. But instead it's coming in this surprising, unanticipated, apparently insignificant form. But it's anything but... Um, and that, so that's what's happening, I think, in the Lord's Prayer as well. So, may your name be hallowed. Well, one day when the kingdom comes in its finality, his name will be honored all over the earth. But we suggested that there was a way in which that's anticipated already among Christians. And what was that particular anticipation? One anticipation, one way of hallowing his name. It's actually Matthew. What's that? To evangelize. To evangelize. That whole passage at the end of Matthew where it talks about baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So one way that his name is hallowed in advance is by the baptism in the name of the Father. And many other ways as well. His name is honored already by his people in anticipation of the final final hallowing of his name. What about, um, may your kingdom come? 
may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, hmm. What's the relationship, in this case, what's the relationship between kingdom and going back to that, that address at the very beginning, Father? And this is a little hard to remember because it's, it's, it's very rooted in biblical theology, but it's not something you hear a lot um, these days, but I think it's an important connection. The connection between the coming of the kingdom, the identity of Jesus, and the address of, of God as Father. Well, the, the Father address is, is giving permission. One interpretation is that it's giving permission to the, to the disciples um, to address him as, as the Father. It's a, sort of an adoption. Right. So... Um, there are examples, certainly in the Hellenistic world, of, of God being called Father fairly often. And even within Palestinian Judaism, that is among the Jews, they could refer to God as the Father and sometimes even address Him as our Father. But addressing God as the Father as a single person, as Jesus apparently did, to address God as Abba, and then invite His disciples to also address God in this... Um, collectively but also individually and also to use this word Abba which was Aramaic and a fairly intimate term for God this seems to be an inviting to, an invitation to the disciples to join them in a very close and intimate relationship to God as Father and themselves as the sons and daughters which gets at the really important connotation meaning of sonship um, in the first century drawing on the Old Testament precedent what did it mean to be a son of God in the Old Testament? Inheritance. Okay. Inheritance. Yes. Jessica, you get the gold star. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, son of God it has to do with inheritance. And you think of passages, we looked at passages last week like Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, where the son of God is the Davidic king. Now, there's a, there's a deeper meaning applied to Jesus in the New Testament that has to do with his divinity. But in many places, it's simply picking up on the Old Testament meaning. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. I will be his father and he will be my son. That's 2 Samuel 7. That is, the king is the one, the Messiah is the one who gets, gets the inheritance, who rules over God's land, who is the vice regent ruling over God's land. And so when Jesus was declared to be the Son of God at his baptism, what that mainly meant was, you are the heir to all that I possess. You are the Messiah. You are the king. Address me as father, I have made you my son. That is, human king. He was always divine and always will be divine. So that's what we're talking about. And so then he invites his disciples not to share in his divinity. Doesn't do that. Can't do that. But he does invite them to share in his kingdom. It's the king slash son of God sharing the kingdom with, uh, with the sons and daughters of God. And that's why in a place like Romans 8 he can refer to uh, Jesus as the firstborn son and we are his brothers. Same thing happens in Hebrews 2. So it's a common Old Testament and New Testament way of referring to things. And so when it says, may your kingdom come, after addressing God as the Father, it's recognizing Jesus as the firstborn Son of God, the one who shares in his inheritance with us, and we're asking for our inheritance to come while we already enjoy the status as sons and daughters. 
the status of those who are going to get the inheritance. We're already heirs waiting for the fullness of the inheritance. Yeah, George. Does that mean that they are in the kingdom already? Yes, because the kingdom has already begun. It's already begun in Jesus. We already have the fruits, first fruits of the Spirit. So, you know, in the Old Testament, the king was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, not because he was the second person of the Trinity, but because he was the human king who needed to be anointed as the king. So we share in that spirit anointing, which is already the first fruits of the inheritance. That inheritance is already coming to us. The kingdom is already coming to us in the, um, in the person of the Spirit. So yes, may your kingdom come, already anticipated in the presence of the Spirit in our lives and in the reigning of the Lord Jesus now, especially in his resurrection. Um, and then may your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what do we say about the will of God being done now and um, in the future? How do we anticipate the, the consummate kingdom of God even now? Yeah, Clay. Can we go back to the Spirit? <clears throat> yeah. If the Spirit is the um, sort of first package, for the first, first fruits, down payment, mm-hmm. uh, is that the same Spirit who, after Jesus uh, rising from the dead, and then, or somewhere in there, he's preaching about the Holy Ghost? Yes. Uh, are, are they one and the same? It is, yes. So that. So they mean that the Holy Spirit preceded. Jesus' divinity. Oh, no, no, no. Um, What I mean is that um, when Jesus was declared to be the Son of God at his baptism, thank you, great, great clarifying question. When Jesus was declared to be the Son of God at his baptism, that's picking up on the Old Testament usage of that language where it refers to human kingship. Now, there are other places, like John 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And other places, like in the beginning of Hebrews, where it speaks of Jesus as the Son of God in this deeper divine sense. So, the trick is to recognize the passages where it's using Son of God with reference to his divinity. That's a long discussion. And then the other passages where it's using Son of God in the more um, traditional Old Testament sense of human kingship, Davidic kingship, being the Messiah. And what I'm saying is that what's, um, what's happening in his baptism, I mean, he's already divine. We know that from the beginning of Gospel of John, for example. But what's happening in his baptism is he's declared to be the long-awaited human king in the line of David, who is now going to show what proper human kingship looks like, which, you know, um, human beings have gotten wrong right from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. God appointed them to be his vice regents, to be his kings and representatives. They messed up right at the very beginning. Now, finally, you've got the new Adam, you have the new Israel, you have the new David, showing what it looks like to be the proper human king. And so, in Orthodox Christian theology, Jesus is understood to be fully human and fully divine. And in the baptism, it's the human nature and the fully human part that's, um, that's in view, although it's not denying the other aspect. And so I used to wonder to myself, so if Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, why did he need to be augmented by the third person of the Trinity at the baptism? It seemed a little strange to me that he somehow needed to be empowered by the third person of the Trinity. But if you, if you recognize that what's happening in the baptism is that his human nature, Jesus as a human being, is showing by this filling of the Holy Spirit, this anointing 
uh, with the Holy Spirit what human kingship looks like so that his human nature is being now imbued with the Holy Spirit in the way that the human nature was always meant to be, then suddenly it comes into uh, focus. What's going on here? Anyway, great question. Bill, uh, why is it you, most of the translations I'm looking at right now say your kingdom come. Why do you put may your kingdom come? Is that... Yeah, the Greek is a third person in in, in imperative, so it can be translated, let your kingdom come, may your kingdom come, something of that nature. We usually shorten that and just say, your kingdom come. But what we mean is, may your kingdom come, may your name be hallowed, may your will be done. We leave out the may or the let, but those are also acceptable translations. So there are third person passive imperatives. Yeah. Same area of question. Uh, may does the Greek have a meaning of um, God has choice as to whether His kingdom will come, or is it the typical translation that this is future tense? May come, no, may not come. It's 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 iffy. So is is the stress on iffiness or is the stress on choice? Well, I think this, this stress is on um, people imploring God in prayer. We know you're going to do this. You've promised to do it. Please let it happen fast. Please. And you know, the amazing thing about prayer um, is that God chooses to use the prayers of His people to accomplish His purposes. So that um, in the understanding of prayer that I would accept, you know, we're not trying to change a fickle God's mind. Uh, he's actually invited us to share in the outworking of his purposes. Um, he, t- he chooses to work through human beings rather than around them. And one of the ways in which he chooses to work through human beings is through the prayers um, which he invites them to. So we're invited to utter prayers themselves um, stirred up in our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we're involved perhaps even in this inter-Trinitarian conversation um, as God... Um, as God works out his purposes. So we're actually asking God to do that which he has promised to do and asking him for strength to be um, people who anticipate uh, the, uh, the outworking of that promise, even in the present. But when I look at the whole Lord's Prayer, it doesn't say the future is eliminated, but that's the only thing that we're saying is future. Everything else is right now. So it seemed to me that the prayer is, may your kingdom be here now, not necessarily just the future. Oh, it's both. It's a both and. Okay, but your emphasis seems to be in the future. That's what's confusing. Well, it's 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 the whole trick of what's called what's what's been called um, uh, in scholarly circles and non-scholarly circles, the already and the not yet. In other words, we know that Jesus, the kingdom is coming in its final form at the second advent, at the coming of Christ. And that's, that's always on the horizon of the early Christians. And longing for that to come. You think of the word Maranatha. It's an old Aramaic word. On the lips of the early Christians. Lord, come. Lord, come. And I think that's very much in, in this uh, prayer as well. And yet, um, that the kingdom has already arrived. Yeah, that's in the, the emphasis of the whole prayer. Is that it's here, basically. Well, what I would say is that it's actually both. May your kingdom come in its fullness, but it's anticipated now. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's already been... been done in heaven, may it come to earth. So even that, for example, would be future oriented. It's not presently being done on earth fully. I just want to make sure we're not missing the, the present. Well what, you'll, well, what you'll see as I go through the, um, the next uh, three 
petitions is that we're going to do the both and all the way through. There's, there's a present fulfillment and a future fulfillment. And in each case, the present fulfillment is anticipating the future fulfillment. And that's, Why do we say that, though? I mean, I mean, when it's talking about give us this day our daily bread, why are we talking about the future, then? Thank you for that segue. There we go. All right. <laughs> there. Okay. Let's talk, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Um, uh, because it's, it's the question that comes up. Uh, let me alert you to the big interpretive issue in this particular petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, there's a Greek word there, epiousion, um, which no one really knows the meaning of. Now, ordinarily, we do. Well, nobody. Although I say that, but we kind of know what it means. But I mean, how do you determine the meaning of any word? You look at all the other, look at all the uses of the word in the literature, and you look at the context, and you say, "Oh, this is clearly what it means from all the various contexts it was found in." Well, guess what? This is the one and only place this word, this Greek word, is found. It is not found anywhere else. It is only found in the Lord's prayers. And so this has been surprising enough to scholars that they've even suggested that perhaps this was coined by the, um, by the apostles or by Jesus because it's not used anywhere else. When you say not used anywhere else, do you mean within Scripture or do you mean... Now, what I should say, strictly speaking, it's not extant. In other words, it may have been used. We just don't have any other examples. So in all the Greek papyri, all the epigraphic inscription stuff, nowhere. Now, there have been, you know, along the way, little hints where somebody will say, a scholar named A.H. Sace back in 1889 claimed that he had had a a papyrus with this word on it. But then the papyrus was lost. And... Some people claim that it's been found recently, but I haven't verified that. In any case, he was terrible at, uh, very unreliable, let's put it that way, at uh, his deciphering Greek words, so the guy can't be trusted. And in fact, the recent reports of its rediscovery say actually he did not decipher it correctly. So all that to say that as far as we know, this is the one usage of the term, and it has several possible meanings which get at the very question that George was asking about. Are we talking about something in the future or something in the present? Uh, so anyway, uh, epiousion is the, is the one that's in question. The other Greek there is uh, day by day or today. I may or may not talk about that. Let me talk about um, epiousion, which is translated in English generally by a daily so, according to Holden, the familiar English daily, give us our daily bread, renders the Latin quotidianus, which, which established itself for lack of any better idea of how to render the Greek word and from a misunderstanding of its etymology. And they're like, okay, I've never seen this word before. The early Greek father said this, so, hmm, not sure what it means. Let's just say daily. The fact is that apart from its occurrence in the Lord's Prayer, Epiusios has not yet been attested in literary or epigraphic sources. This absence of parallels helps to create uncertainty about the meaning, as does um, its obscurity of etymology. By etymology, I mean where it came from. Um, you know, it's not usually a good idea to even rely on etymology of a word. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Maybe this is a naive question, but if we assume that this is. Yeah, a prayer that was said in the early church and was carried forth even to the present, how does the meaning of a word just get lost? I mean, don't 
people who speak Greek know say the Lord's Prayer? I mean, what well, I say it's not it's not as though it's a complete crapshoot that well it could mean maybe it means um, skyscraper and maybe it means um, you know dungeon. But, but I mean, it, it does have a restricted use of meaning, which we'll talk about. But actually, remember that Jesus said the Lord's Prayer, in all likelihood, in Aramaic. So this is a translation of an Aramaic word. And so simply saying that, you know, the Gospel writers, when they translated it, or whoever translated it along the way, the early Greek-speaking church, they used a word that we simply don't have an example of from any other literature. That may just be an accident of history. We just don't have it. It doesn't show up in any of our sources. That's more my question. Is how did it get forgotten if we assume that a Greek-speaking church has been... Yeah, I don't know. And again, it may have been coined. I mean, sometimes... You, and you'll see, you'll see how this works. There, um, because people have tried to de- derive it, and sometimes we make up our own words, uh, and maybe they did too. I mean, think of strategery, for example. I mean, you know. So, <laughs> okay, the word may arise from a compounding of the preposition epi with the verb to be, of which cognate examples were well established, or else from compounding the verb to come, um, confusingly also a me but differently accented and inflected. Now, just, just pause and think about this for a minute. Amy in Greek, depending on the accent, can mean to be or to come. Now, already we can see that this gets at what George was getting at. Are we talking about the coming day? So is it pushing toward the future, maybe? Are we talking about the day that is? Or the bread that is? Are we talking about the coming bread? Or the, uh, the bread that is at the present. So already we can see that even our, in our translation, there may be uh, different possibilities. Is it focusing on the present? Is it focusing on the future? And indeed, that's where part of the controversy lies. If you assume that this word, epiousion, comes ultimately from the Greek verb to be, then it might be bread for our, bread for our being. That is our being. That is, for our subsistence so we can continue to live. Or it might be bread for the being day. That is, bread for the present day, the day that is. The point is, is that either way it's sort of focused on the present. If you assume that that verb, that, um, it's actually not a verb, it's actually a kind of adjective. But anyway, if you assume that it comes from to come... Well, it might be bread coming in the future, bread coming for this day, possibly bread coming from the Father, the bread of the coming kingdom. But you can see that depending on which way you go with the underlying Greek, it might be a focus on the present, and it might be a focus on the, on the future. That's why you can see here... Well, no, you can't see it because I've got it covered up. But this translation, the, the, the translation that I'm going from, from this particular scholar, actually says, Our bread for the morrow, give us today. Our bread for tomorrow, give us, give us today. That's based on the assumption that epiousion has to do with the coming bread, pushing toward the future. Others will say, well, we say it all the time, our daily bread, and we probably mean the bread for today. To simplify the question, is this request in the Lord's Prayer a non-eschatological request for one's daily food? Now let's stop for a moment. Again, reminder, eschatological, what does that mean? In times. In times. 
I mean, from a Christian biblical standpoint, we've been in the end time since Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Because his death and resurrection were end time events. The judgment of God intervened in a climactic way at his death. The, the restoration purposes of God intervened climactically at his resurrection. And we wait for the, the other shoe to drop when the Lord comes again. That's what we're waiting for. We're in between those two. The first shoe is dropped. We're waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's what we're waiting for. In the meantime, are we asking for the Lord to pre- prepare um, to provide bread for us just along the way? Lord, we're waiting. And until you come back again, give us our daily bread. It's an unanswerable question because the, the meaning or significance of the first shoe is only apparent or emergent with the falling of the second shoe. Now the second shoe is supposedly predicted at least 24 times, according to UVA professors. But in his course, uh, there were 24 periods of history where people basically quit working, got ready for the end of it, and it didn't happen. So, but you can still you can. So how, how do you answer that question that the shoe has never hit? Uh, wouldn't it be more logical? to assume that the second shoe is never going to hit, that we need to go back and look at the meaning of the first shoe, or the event that we call the first shoe. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the Christian expectation, um, first of all, we can frame the question in terms of what the early Christians were expecting. So when they, when they prayed this prayer, when Jesus gave this prayer, what was he expecting? And I would say um, that the, and I think this, in saying this, I'm in accord with the gospel writers and with the apostles, that um, for them, the gospel was bound up with that hope of the other shoe dropping. And they were confident that the other shoe would drop, to continue that unfortunate metaphor. Um, They were confident that that second advent would come, uh, precisely because they saw it having already begun decisively in the resurrection of Jesus. So this is why, and I think I may have said this last week, but I can't remember, but... um, uh, the resurrection of Jesus became the means by which one was saved, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, well, why do you have to believe that? Um, is it because God lets especially gullible people into the kingdom? Or is it because, empowered by his Spirit, they are buying into a particular vision of the future? that they believe has already decisively begun in the resurrection. And knowing that they have a God who loves to make his people wait um, because it evokes a faith in him, a trust that he will keep his promises in a way that gives him glory, his people say, I know what has already begun in Christ and as a result in me by his spirit will in fact one day be completed. Now, granted, it's been 2,000 years since people are still waiting, but that's pretty much in accord with the Old Testament where God keeps his people waiting for hundreds of years in Egypt and a number of years in Babylon and, and so forth. So in any case, in terms of the early Christian expectation, indeed the Orthodox Christian expectation throughout history, um, there is this sort of horizon of expectation. The question then would be, is this, is this petition, give us our coming bread or our daily bread, is that a reference to that expectation or, or is it just provide for us in the meantime? Or is it both? It just seems to me, I mean, this reminds me of a lot of the discussions that we had in the Old and the New Testament course, yeah. where we come to a word that can be translated as like 15 different propositions and creates an ambiguity. Doesn't it, I mean, 
why does it have to be one or the other? Yeah. And couldn't it be purposely ambiguous because both are relevant to a Christian? Well, yeah. As you can see, I put the simple valid question, is this a non-eschatological request for one's daily food, or is it an eschatological request for the coming king, kingdom banquet, or both, because I knew that at precisely this moment someone would say, well, why, do you, why are you opposing the alternative? Can't we just say both? So I put or both. So that's where I'm heading, but let's look at both sides of that, because there's actually biblical evidence for both, and it helps to fill this out just a little bit. Okay, what's the evidence that what we have here is simply a request for food every day? Lord, provide for our daily needs, the most basic of which is is food. And bread becomes a stand-in for a general request for food. A lot of people have pointed out the connection of the Lord's Prayer to Proverbs 38 and 9. Remove far from me, speaking to God, so it's a prayer. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So here's a, here's a prayer that the Lord will simply pro- pro- provide for daily bread. Um, and it's obvious, it obviously has to do with just food. Don't let, don't let me have too much, but give me enough. Because too much is a temptation, and too little is a temptation. So don't lead me into temptation, as it were. Because if, if, if I'm led into temptation, and if I have too much or too little, then what might happen? I might, at, I might not hallow the name of my God. Isn't that interesting? There's a reference to hallowing or failing to hallow the name of God. There's a, a request to feed me, obviously, with just food day in and day out, so that I won't be led into the kind of temptation to, um, to steal or um, to profane the name of God. So there's some very interesting connections between Proverbs 38 and 9, and indeed you can see them a guy named Biargian uh, suggests that not only the request for daily bread is in both of them, but indeed uh, a similar desire not to be led into testing, keep deceptions and lies far from me, and a desire not to um, profane or indeed to hallow the name of God. So it is an interesting connection. And if Proverbs 30 is some sort of background, we're not suggesting complete dependence here, but if it's some sort of background to the Lord's Prayer, then maybe we should swing toward the side of daily provision, present, non-eschatological provision. That would be an Old Testament background that may suggest um, present daily bread. All right, now, let's look at the other side, because there's... Would manna also fall into into that category? Wonderful segue. Let's have a look. Yeah, it's actually coming. But strangely enough, it seems to be on both sides. We'll talk about that in just a moment. An eschatological request for the coming banquet... Uh, in Luke 15, and remember that Luke is one of the Gospels where the Lord's Prayer is found, Luke and Matthew. When one of those who reclined at table uh, with him, with Jesus, heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not, not uncommon in the Gospels for the notion of eating bread 
to uh, have to do with the eschatological banquet. That is, when the kingdom finally comes, we'll have a banquet and we'll eat bread together. Can I make another suggestion? Yes. Is it, um, there is a theme all the way through the Bible regarding the five elements. And they're often, the, the elements have synonyms. Like right near to Proverbs 30, I think it's uh, 18, uh, the writer or the speaker says, there are four things too wonderful for me to understand. Basically, he calls it an eagle, mm-hmm, a boat, mm-hmm. uh, a snake, and a man seducing a woman. So he's got earth, air, fire, water all the way through there. So these parallelisms, these du- these polarities, so if, if we accept that perhaps bread like stone and water are very key negative code words, then bread is suggesting the balance and the integration and the disappearance of everything into the one. You take, you take the ingredients of bread and they all lose their identity in becoming bread. The water disappears, the grain disappears, the heat disappears, uh, and the labor of the bread maker. So what's left? Bread. So Jesus is the bread, the bread, which is eaten in heaven. So I would argue, I might have to take off on another bunch of chapters, but these are very helpful uh, passages for me in this theme. Bread is the symbol of five elements. Jesus is the embodiment of the balance of the five elements. And... Therefore, blessed are you who are hungry now. I mean, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I read that as those who eat me will be blessed because you become the king. Okay, let me let me actually take that point and develop it. Um, you'd have to you'd have to show me some biblical passages that show the whole five elements thing. Because here here's the, here's here's what we want to do. We want to make sure that we're interpreting. Biblical passages and biblical categories. In fact, that's that's the um, that's the aim of biblical theology. Mm-hmm. Your point that um, Jesus is the bread of life is most definitely a biblical category. So let's let's have a look at it. Mm-hmm. That's where we're heading. Okay, uh, Luke six. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And in the context of Luke six, that's talking about the satisfaction um, on the day of Christ. In Matthew eight, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke twenty two, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So notice in Luke and in Matthew that you have this hope of dining with Jesus at the banquet table in the kingdom partaking of bread with him. And given that theme, you have to ask yourself if, if indeed they're asking for coming bread whether it might not be the bread of the coming kingdom. And see, that raises the question then, of, well, how would that bread of the coming kingdom be something you could even ask for now? And uh, that will take us back um, through the Exodus, which Jessica talked about, and then um, ultimately back to Jesus, which Clay brought up. This is from Raymond Brown. The Old Testament background for this interpretation is interesting. The real parallel for give us today our bread for tomorrow is the description of the manna in Exodus 16.4. I will rain bread from heaven for you, a day's portion every day. And in Psalm 78.24, and he gave them the bread of heaven. 
So in both Exodus and in Psalm, there's a reference of God providing bread for his people. Now, if you're a Jew in the first century, and you're asking God to provide bread, a very natural story to come to mind would be the story of the Exodus, where God did provide bread for his people. So what's the early Christian understanding of this provision of bread by God for his people? And this was part of the passage that Clay was alluding to, John 6. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And in context, interestingly, that's Jesus. Raymond Brown goes on to say, As the discourse that follows shows, that is in John 6, Jesus is the bread in a twofold sense, as the incarnate teaching, that is, word of the Father, and as the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. In the latter sense, the Eucharistic sense, he promises that whoever eats of his flesh will be raised up on the last day. Thus, John joins with Paul in seeing the Eucharistic bread as an eschatological pledge. Now, let me put that in normal language. What he's suggesting is that maybe this asking for bread was asking for the kind of bread that you partake of in the bread and the cup. And that when you and remember early Christians, they didn't do it quite the way we do it. It's not like they had, you know, the wafer or something like that. They actually got together for a meal. And as they were having their meal together, there would be a moment where this became um, an imitation of what Jesus did with his disciples in a way that anticipated the coming kingdom. Right? So, so, so you, you do this until the Lord comes. It's a remembrance of the coming kingdom. It's an anticipation of the coming banquet. So as you eat the bread today, you're remembering the coming of the kingdom. And in fact, Raymond Brown, th- these passages are taken from an article where he argues that the entire Lord's Prayer is eschatological. It's talking not about what's going on today. It's fundamentally talking about a hope for the coming of God's kingdom, including... The asking for bread, because, you, because it's a reference to the Eucharistic bread. Now, let me say something about that just in terms of church history. Whether this seems convincing to you or not, it is interesting that it's, this is a very prominent interpretation in the first couple centuries of the church. Uh, I've talked about the Didache, which is the earliest other reference uh, to the Lord's Prayer. It's uh, a Christian document from the late 1st century, early 2nd century. You have the recitation of the Lord's Prayer. Do you know where it's found in the Didache? Didache is Greek for teaching. It is found after the instructions for baptism and before the instructions for the Eucharist. It's, It's between them. Suggesting that the early Christians, when they got baptized, and we know this from other places... They would be given the Lord's Prayer now as their possession. They couldn't have it before, but now you can learn the Lord's Prayer. Now you're allowed to call God Abba, Father. And then you would use that prayer as you were taking the Eucharist. And you would say the petition about the bread with reference to the Eucharistic bread, looking forward to the coming of the kingdom. So it's something that's maybe rooted in the Gospels themselves with Matthew and and Luke, and was very popular in um, the early church. In fact, so much so that epiousios, this word that we aren't exactly sure whether it means coming or present, was translated by Origen, an early father of the church, as supersubstantial. Epi, super, usios, substantial, as a way of saying the supersubstantial bread is the Eucharistic bread. 
So there's a long Christian tradition of referring this petition of the bread for the Eucharistic bread that anticipates the coming of the, the kingdom banquet. But yeah, George. It also is present tense, though. Well, you have the Eucharistic... Whether it's, whether it's partaking, as the Lutherans say, of the, of the, the body, yep. or whether it's this Holy Spirit, it's present tense. Yes. I mean, it may have a future, but it's present tense. Like the next verse, these are simple disciples he's talking to, and they're understanding this at this point, at least, in the present tense. Oh, 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 I think so. And yet, in every case, it's a, it's a present tense that anticipates the future. As you baptize... I know, I know, but I mean, you're emphasizing the future tense, and it seems to me you're minimizing that present tense. I don't think so. I mean, Eucharistic bread is what you do in the present. But it's like this. It's like, if I see a sign, and, and I look at the sign, that sign is there in front of me in the present. But, 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 but the sign is pointing to something else, something else that's distant perhaps, you know, um, you know, 100 miles to Philadelphia or something like that. Um, all I'm emphasizing is that we read the signs so that the, the reference to bread here is clearly bread in the present. But it may be bread in the present that is pointing beyond itself to the future. Yeah. When we, yeah, exactly. So it is a both and. And you know, that's what I've said from the beginning is that you've got the, the already and the not yet. That there, it's the kingdom, as Jessica said at the beginning, it's the kingdom that is intruding in the present. How is it intruding in the present? How do we have the presence of the future kingdom right now? Yes, but with respect to the bread, it'd be the Eucharistic bread by this interpretation. Or perhaps even whenever you eat any kind of bread. Maybe it's not just Eucharistic bread. Maybe it's when God gives you food to eat. And this could be a very devotional sort of thing. When God gives you bread to eat, when he gives you food, when you're saying your prayer, maybe our minds are meant to be drawn to the fact that, yeah, this is good. But this is just an anticipation of what is coming in the future. So that our minds are drawn, by the earthly things, our, our minds are drawn back up to God, but they're also sort of drawn toward the future. This is an anticipation of the future banquet. The, the, the present banquet is good, but it's nothing compared with the future banquet. So, George, I'm just trying to do the, the sort of the both and. It's certainly in the present, and it's asking for something in the present that anticipates the future. So when we look at it, we see that future already present here. I don't think so. Anyway. Can you just take two seconds and speak to, um, you know, I think we've probably all heard sermons at some point that uses bread as, you know, sort of a symbol for whatever it is that you need daily. Well, listen, um, the, 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 the emphasis on the daily presentness of the bread is actually emphasized in Luke. I mean, it says, possibly in Matthew, you could take this as our coming bread, give us today. I mean, you could translate that, our bread for tomorrow, maybe even the eschatological tomorrow, give us today. But it is interesting that in Luke, our bread, whether it's present or future, give us day by day. Clearly, Luke is emphasizing the day in and the day out nature of God's provision for us. So I don't think we want to. I don't think we want to play them up against one another. I think we just want to have a strong both and. It is God's future intruding into our present, and we simply look at that present and we see God, God's future already here. You have a parallel with the manna in the wilderness, which was only good for that one day. Yes. Yeah. That's right. 
and uh, and and that and, and interestingly, I mean, what Brown does with it is he says when Jesus used the wilderness experience and, and talked about the bread coming from heaven, it was his own body and flesh, which was a Eucharist. Well, that's true. It is also true in early Christianity that the story of the Exodus was commonly used as a way of describing the Christian life. So where are we in the Christian life? Day by day. Well, we're not in bondage anymore. We're out of Egypt. So we're not in bondage to sin. Well, where are we? Well, we're, we're not yet in the promised land. That hasn't come yet. Where are we? We're in the wilderness. So in 1 Corinthians 10, um, in Hebrews 3 and 4, um, at the beginning of Jude, there are these references to um, you're in the wilderness, you're in a time of temptation, be faithful, God provides for us. And interestingly, even Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 does refer to the, um, the giving of the manna as the Eucharist. But it may just be day in and day out, and God is providing for you, Eucharistically and otherwise. And all of that reminds you of his final capital P provision that's going to be coming um, in the promised land when he gets us there. In the, mean, in the meantime, we've been 40 years in the wilderness, 2,000 years for the church, and uh, it's a lot longer than we expected. Yeah. That scholars have a way of uh, whipping it up so that you, if it was stone soup, that the stone still at the bottom, nobody's really looking at the stone. Um, seems rather simple that if, if Jesus is the bread of heaven, he can be present if those present eating the bread do so with the right frame of mind or from the right consciousness or with the right love. But it's just going to be bread from the fields created by the community. So it could be either or or it could be both. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, a big fa- I'm a big fan of the both and interpretation here. It's present bread, which is, and especially if it's Eucharistic. Boy, talk about really pointing to the future and uniting us with Christ uh, by His Spirit, partaking of His body and His flesh. All right, well, let's move on. Um, this is a wonderful explication of the complexity of this. You've made oh, thank you, Clay. Well, you can see that the sort of question that's raised here, um, it's, it's what we were dealing with in the first three petitions, it, it continues uh, to drive the Lord's Prayer, which is there's, there's a present dimension and there's a future dimension. Um, and uh, here's a quote from Biargian suggesting that we probably shouldn't choose between one and the other. In terms of overall meaning, most scholars do not drive a wedge between these two options. And good for them. Regardless of its derivation, Epiusios focuses upon the need for bread during the coming day, which assures one's continued existence. D.A. Hagner states, the, bread is, the, the prayer rather is nevertheless a prayer for bread, and there is a sense in which the bread, by synecdoche, food, we partake of daily is an anticipation of the eschatological banquet. So what I would say for this, when we're praying this, let's do a both and. Let's pray for our daily provision. Let's ask God to provide for our needs, our food, and everything else. And yet there are so many ways in which those needs that he meets can be a figure and a type of his coming provision for us in the kingdom. Food is one example. I'll give you another one. Uh, This isn't the Lord's Prayer, but... It's an anticipation. Okay, we eat food. We say, okay, this is good, but it's not like the coming kingdom. What about clothing? This is something that God provides for us, provided for Adam and Eve, despite their sin in the garden. 
And yet we know from lots of passages that um, one of the things that happens at the great banquet day of the Lord is that he gives us kingly robes and queenly robes. And indeed Paul uses that metaphor very much um, in terms of the resurrection body. So that when we put on our clothing, that can be a kind of anticipation, looking forward to glorified bodies and um, being covered with the glo- being imbued indeed with the, with the glory of the Lord. So, all these things that God provides for us in the in the present, I think we can extend this. The things that God provides for us in the present can be windows into His future, into our future hope, if we have the eyes to see. And I think that's what the Lord's prayer is calling for: is provide for us now. But help us to see this also as an anticipation of the future. That's, uh, I think that's what's, um, what we're getting at here. Okay, let's look at the next petition. And forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now this could be a little controversial. Does it suggest that... The forgiveness God grants us is somehow dependent on our forgiving, forgiving other people. That's the crux here. We've looked at a few of the cruces up in the other one, but well, this is the crux here. Does this mean that God's forgiveness of us is dependent on our forgiving others? And here, I just have to, um, have to quote some N.T. Wright. He's so good on this. So this is N.T. Wright from his book on the Lord's Prayer. And you're going to see, once again, it's the whole notion of... The present, and in particular our present action, anticipating what God has done and will do. Jesus thinks he's the kingdom bringer. Jesus isn't just a teacher in the Gospels. He is making an announcement about something that is happening. And he is doing and saying things which explain that announcement and demonstrate it's true. My child, your sins are forgiven. And he heals the man's paralysis. Jesus sits down to eat with tax collectors and sinners, acting out the open welcome that uh, that Israel's God extends. When he's challenged about this undignified behavior, he tells a story about a father who threw his dignity into the dustbin and ran down the road to welcome his disgraced son. Which is all about forgiveness, right? The father forgives the son. Healings, parties, stories, and symbols all said the forgiveness of sin, of sins is happening right under your noses. This is the new exodus, the real return from exile, the prophetic fulfillment, the great liberation. This is the disgraceful advent of our astonishing God. And he calls it disgraceful because it's the image of the father throwing off all dignity and running down the road um, to meet his son and to forgive him. For the Jews in that day, the forgiveness of God was an eschatological event. When, is, when are we going to be finished with the exile? When, are, when, when is God's wrath going to be um, exhausted? Because when it's exhausted, when the wrath of God is exhausted, then the restoration will come. When God forgives us, then finally the kingdom will come. So the forgiveness of God and the coming of the kingdom belong together. And then Jesus has the temerity to come and say to people, your sins are forgiven. You can imagine how much it would have driven people crazy. He was claiming for himself the right of God to forgive sins. And suggesting that somehow in his person the restoration was coming. 
So part of the Christian announcement of the kingdom is that the kingdom has arrived. It will arrive when Jesus comes again, but it has already arrived because God's forgiveness is available now. We don't have to wait for God's forgiveness in the future. God's forgiveness has arrived in advance of Jesus coming back on the clouds. It's a wonderful anticipation of the kingdom. So Jesus went from village to village through the lovely Galilean countryside announcing that the kingdom had arrived. That forgiveness was happening. That God was transforming his people. That's the announcement of Jesus. Continue with right. And wherever people responded to his call, he gave them instructions as to how they should live as the new Exodus people. Notice that reference again to the Exodus. We're in the wilderness. We're coming out, we're coming out from um, bondage. We're heading toward the promised land. We are the new Exodus people of God. We're the forgiveness of sins people. They were to live in each village or town as a cell of kingdom people, a little group loyal to Jesus and his kingdom vision. In particular, they were to practice God's forgiveness among themselves. Not to do so would mean they hadn't grasped what was going on. As soon as someone in one of these Jesus cells refused to forgive a fellow member, he or she was saying, in effect, I don't really believe the kingdom has arrived. I don't think the forgiveness of sins has actually occurred. See what's happening again? Once again, God's people acting as advanced tokens, as flags sort of pointing to that future. The future has not arrived in its fullness, but do you see the way in which the people of God are living anticipations of the kingdom? When they eat their bread, and especially when they partake of the Eucharistic bread, do you see an anticipation of the kingdom? Do you have the eyes to see it? When they forgive each other, do you see an example of God's forgiveness working its way out already in the present as they imitate their God? And so you can see that the Lord's Prayer is about the manifestations of that, present, of that kingdom already in the present by way of bread and now by way of forgiveness and it's important not that we just ask for God's forgiveness but that people can see evidence of that kingdom in our lives as well which leads to the next point is God's forgiveness dependent upon our forgiveness well that's the wrong way of looking at it so Wright says and please note this isn't saying that we do this in order to earn God's forgiveness it's a further statement of our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom Claiming the central blessing of the kingdom only makes sense if we are living by that same central blessing ourselves. So how do people know that we're members of the kingdom? Well, they know first and foremost by our confession of Jesus as Lord. That's the, that's the, the sign by which we announce ourselves as people of God. Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And I believe that God raised him from the dead because I'm buying into that resurrection vision of the world in which God doesn't just save our souls, he saves our bodies, he saves all of creation. And I'm already going to be living out the forgiveness of God because that's what the future looks like. So the Christian life is all about anticipating the coming of the kingdom. Um, in, in ways that show the world what that kingdom looks like in really important ways. Okay, any questions on that petition, the forgiveness of sins? Do you see how we're doing the both and again and again and again? Why has the modern world moved away from the word debts? 
Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. You've got debts in one. You've got are you thinking of trespasses, for example. Yeah, yeah. They're both. Um, they're slightly different words um, in Matthew and in Luke. Um, both of them end up being references to sin. Uh, one of them is an Aramaism for sin. Can be a debt, something that we owe God. But um, the point being that we're, we're asking for forgiveness for our sins. Which can, be, which can be spoken of in terms of a debt, which can be spoken of in terms of a trespass. Other questions? The, the, the asking for forgiveness of sins is, is something day by day. If we say we have no sin, the truth of God isn't in us. And then if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from yes. righteousness. Yes, exactly right. So God has already forgiven us, but how? Um, and that forgiveness is an anticipation of the coming kingdom, because that forgiveness is a part of the coming kingdom. And then we make that manifest to the world by imitating our Lord in His forgiveness. So how, how can the world see that? Well, they can begin to see it by the way that we're forgiving each other. So how, how can the world see the love of Christ? Well, they can see it in our sacrificial love for them and for each other. How can they see the forgiveness of God? They can see it in us. And so these are manifestations of kingdom realities. And I keep saying the future, but it's, it's in, in some ways it's a present reality with Jesus already. So that present is it's the whole notion of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That kingdom reality in heaven is not yet fully here, but it will be one day. So we live, we live in a way that represents that to the world and to each other. Okay, let's look at the last petition. And do not lead us into test, but rescue us from the evil one. Okay, the question remains. It's the question that we had posed right from the very beginning. Should this be interpreted eschatologically or non-eschatologically? And you might be able to guess where we're heading with this. Um, it's a false alternative. We should, we should be thinking both ways here. But first, we've got some issues. This is a little bit like that um, fourth petition. Uh, how should we translate these words? Um, in particular, the test. Usually we say, do not lead us into temptation. You'll notice the translation here says, do not lead us into test. That's worth talking about, especially since... It's a little strange to be asking God not to lead us into temptation. I like that line in their head. Okay. So we need to talk about it. I mean, I would expect a good friend or anyone I expected, you know, to lead me into trial, temptation. I mean, I know God uses them in that. It just seems like it dishonors God. Yeah. And we don't want to do that, so we need to talk about what, what's going on well, with the. Well, he does lead me to test, I need them. You know, I'm sorry. Well, so yeah, but so we want to look at the biblical evidence and see what's going on here. And then you'll notice that rescue us from the evil one. Usually you say deliver us from evil. What's this business about the evil one? So I want to talk about both of those things and what's the appropriate translation and understanding of this particular petition. Let's talk about uh, test or temptation. Uh, first of all, the Greek word there is perosmos. What does perosmos mean? And in particular, should perosmos be translated as temptation or test? And what's the difference between those two? Yeah. Um, 
This is from an article by Doms, who, who uh, makes the point that in the earliest period, and we're referring now to the Old Testament, this vocabulary of perosmos and also the, the verbal cognates perazzo, it was used of testing in order to know the true state of the religion of the person or persons tested and without any suggestion of hostility toward the person or persons concerned. So, for example, in Genesis 22, it says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that's used there is the word that's related to pirosmos, to pirazo. So, God tested Abraham. Now, was he trying to get Abraham to do the wrong thing? Well, no. He was, by the end of the chapter, you know, he says, Now I know that you honor me. Now I know that you love me. Now I know that you um, will obey me. It's a, it's a positive sort of test. So clearly, at least in this example, perazo, perosmos can be used in the terms of, of testing something like you would metal to see if it's actually pure and good. But God's omniscient. He already knew. I just have never bought that. I mean, God doesn't need to test us to see our metal. He can see right through you and me. Oh, yes, that's true. Don't you think the whole purpose of the test is so that we will know whether we're phony or not? Or oh, yeah, I'm ultimately... Just to understand ourselves, not just our words. Yeah. I mean, ultimately... Yeah, go ahead, Kelly. Well, but then if it's a good thing and it's good for us and God uses it, then why are we asking not to have that happen? Exactly. Yeah, so we need to look at the full range of the usage of this word. We've just begun. So this peyraja language, this peyrosmos language is used in a number of different ways, and it's going to get a little tricky, and you're putting your finger on the question we're going to need to ask ourselves. If it's a good thing, why would we ask for it not to happen? But the point that we need to make is that at some points in the Old Testament, God is actually the one who is testing, peyrazo. And it's a good thing. I mean, ultimately we know that God is omniscient, but... It is also true that um, God is constantly, he's engaging with human beings all the time. I mean, he also, he also does need to come down and look at Sodom and Gomorrah and see how evil they are. And he certainly does need to ask Abraham, what, you know, he does need to tell Abraham what he's about to do so that Abraham can have that long, well, how about 40, 50, 45, I mean, it's, you know, it's like bartering with God. What's that? Like an, like an auction. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So this is a God who's engaging with human beings constantly. Um, instead, Because he is omniscient, we know he's omnipotent, and yet he's, he's, it's, it's as if he's asking human beings, intercede, mediate, um, mediate uh, on behalf of someone. Um, show me, but more than that, show yourself that you are faithful and obedient. God's yeah. never testing for knowledge. He's already got the knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Tested for our benefit. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, and yet, there's a way in which I, I want. I want to say absolute. To that. That's that's true. Um, absolutely true. And yet, it is also true that um, just to honor the aspect of things working themselves out in time and space that. God can know hypothetically that Abraham would be faithful if he did this. 
but he actually allows it to happen in time and space. He doesn't say, well, no, that Abraham would actually sacrifice his son, that Abraham would be willing to sacrifice his son and obey God. God, of course, in all of eternity, outside of time and space, could say, well, I don't need to do this because Abraham's going to be faithful. And yet, we have a God who doesn't content himself with remaining there. It's like it becomes real, in a sense, by the actual happening of it. So when Abraham actually obeys, not God just knew he would obey, but when he actually has the opportunity and obeys, there's a sense of knowing that's even deeper because it's actually happened now. It's like, son, I knew that you would obey me, but now in this really difficult situation that you've done it, I really know it. There's a sense of it's actually happened now. I guess I just want to give weight to the... um, the fact that it moves from hypothetical knowledge to actual knowledge for God. Because it's actually happened. But anyway. Isn't that part of the training too though? I mean we also see the biblical metaphor mm-hmm. of an athlete who is training so that he will pass the test. Yes. If you don't train, you don't pass the test. And, and it's, I, I get the picture that you have a, a test, you train for that test, you pass it. Keep going. You, tra- you know, you're training for a more difficult test, and I sort of see that also going on here. Maybe uh, yes, God knows we'll pass it, but we won't have passed it if we haven't trained for it. Yeah. The small things leads to being faithful for large things. Yeah. Well, there's, and that will be actually the next uh, when we talk about the next use of perazzo and testing. It will actually be the notion of uh, discipline. God disciplining and um, training us in that way so it has that meaning but even remaining at this meaning for the moment I guess what I'm saying is that there's a kind of knowledge that we have or that God has that's more real just because it's actually happened I know, I know it's going to happen but now I've seen it actually happen in time and space and now I know because you've actually done it that you obey me and that you love me so there's a sense in which I want to give complete weight to God's omniscience and yet say even God knows it when it actually happens um, in, in, in a more realistic sense. Oh well. I'll leave it at that. You do that. I'll be content that God tested Abraham so that we would have record to see the depth of faith in the man. And that, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Exodus 16.4, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, peradza, perosmos, whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, let's, see, that's interesting, because once again, we're right back to the Exodus, recalling that we are the new Exodus people of God. God provides bread for us, but we have to trust Him for that daily provision of bread. And, um, and it is a kind of test. Uh, and it seems to be in a very similar sense to Genesis uh, 22. I, I'll tell you, this, this, this Lord's Prayer seems very much to be rooted in um, a new Exodus understanding of the people of God. That storyline is very powerful because think about those people. They're out of bondage, they're in the wilderness, and what are they on their way to? A kingdom. The promised land ultimately after the period of the judges is the hope of a kingdom with a king that is the storyline of the people of God you see it in the Old Testament bondage, wilderness, land and kingdom and so this is where the people of God find themselves now in the wilderness being tested trusting God for daily provision of bread on their way to the kingdom and that seems to be what's being evoked here in the Lord's Prayer in a number of ways
living in the modern age is I cannot separate the kingdom from the notion of land. Oh, and well, you shouldn't. The, the kingdom of the Israeli people. Yes. Is the land of the Palestinians or some other group. So for them to be faithful to God's law means they're being faithful to group assassination of another group. We're living in the time when this is all coming home to roost with the Israelis and the Palestinians still fighting over the same land. Okay, well... Let, how, how would you yeah. separate out those realities from this theology that constantly yeah. assigns positive value to a group of people who are being led on the dole. Basically, you can't fend for yourself, you can't feed yourself, yeah. so I'll keep you on the dole as a test to see if you're actually following orders, and at some point when I'm satisfied, then you will be back, I guess, to the Garden of Eden. Yeah. That, that Finally paid? Well, let me address it this way. Um, I, I can't get into the notion of holy war now. Clay, you have got to come to my Old Testament class because we have a three-hour lecture on holy war alone. And so we do fully address that, but I do not have okay. three hours at the moment. I'll take, I'll take the... But I do take the Old Testament class. So let me just bracket that and say it's a huge issue and it needs to be addressed, but I can't do it right now. But let me go back to the land for the moment and go back to your first point, which is you can't have a kingdom without land. I couldn't agree with you more. And it is interesting that the early Christian, actually the first century Jewish understanding of the Palestinian land was that that land itself was a down payment on God's promise to give his people not just a little piece of real estate on the earth, but indeed the whole earth. And Paul picks up that promise of land and um, refers it to the new creation, which, which gets at something very important in the Christian hope, which is not going off in a disembodied state to heaven, which is outside of time and space. That the Christian, the biblical Christian and orthodox Christian understanding is that God makes us kings and queens with a land ruling over this earth in resurrected bodies in the strongest possible affirmation of the environment and ecology and this world. It's nothing like, the, um, unfortunately, the very popular notion of dying and having your spirit go off into heaven as a way of kind of escaping creation. It's more like a spiritualized physical body still in the physical Well, I would even be careful with the word spiritualized. I would say it is a trans-physical body. It's a physical body. Uh, so you have to give way to that. And it is a body. It is glorified. What exactly that means is interesting. But it's, it's, it's a body in a new creation. And so the biblical... The biblical conception is so strongly oriented to, toward this earth and this land and these bodies, good gifts of God, which have been robbed from us in so many ways by sin and will be fully restored so that when we talk about the promised land, I've been talking about New Exodus all this time, when we talk about the promised land, we really mean the promised land. And we don't mean Palestine at this point. We mean God renewing the whole world and giving us resurrection bodies. That is our Christian hope. Now, your point about the Holy War, that needs to be addressed. I can't do it now. But I do want to underline that notion of a kingdom involves land. And um, it's a wonderful, wonderful Christian hope that gives every reason 
for you know anticipating our future inheritance of the land by by attention and love for the environment and ecology even today and certainly our bodies these are good gifts of God so yeah thank you for making that point all right um, so there are a number of places in the um, the Old Testament which speak of uh, God testing his people as a way of revealing their faithfulness and um, their holiness and obedience to him. So much so that some of the rabbis actually in the first couple of centuries um, began to see testing as something that you might actually seek, you know, as a way of, um, one author put it as sort of spiritual muscle building, you know. Um, this is good. You should be tested. That will make you stronger in the end. And then other rabbis said, well, no, no, no. You don't, you don't want that kind of testing because when David prayed in Psalm 26.2, you see Psalm 26.2, there's another example. He prayed, Lord, test me. And the rabbis would say, unfortunately for David, he did test, uh, he did test David in the form of Bathsheba. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so no, you, you don't you don't just go say, Oh Lord, test me and reveal my strength. This may already be the recognition of why you say don't lead me into testing, because there's there's the possibility of um, obedience and faithfulness being manifested, but there's always that other possibility, and you don't do that triumphalistically or lightly or blithely. Oh Lord, lead me into that testing. So there were rabbis who said it was a good thing, and other rabbis said. No, no, no. The example of David is a, is a fair warning in that respect. You don't ask God to test you. He might just do it. Um, this is the point that uh, I think Kelly was getting at earlier. When um, it's not sometimes testing is not just the testing of showing someone's true metal, but sometimes it's used of a period of discipline or tribulation. For the sake of time, I won't go into those passages, but many of you will think of them in places like Hebrews and elsewhere. And finally, perosmos is frequently used in the New Testament in a connotation in which enticement to evil is prominent. If you're being tested, it might work out for the best. It might not. You might fail. You might fall. And James 1.13 is the most famous example of this use of the word perazo or perosmos. Let no one say when he is tempted, tested, I am being tempted or tested by God. Well, clearly Abraham could have said that because it says explicitly that he was tested by God. But there's a different meaning being um, ascribed to the word here. We need to be careful. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted or tested by God. For God cannot be tempted or tested with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So sometimes testing is used with um, God's intentions when he um, wants to show somebody's faithfulness. But the point is, is he never tests or tempts in such a way that he's trying to get you to do the wrong thing. That usage of the word test or tempt is there as well. And if you're going to use the word in that sense, I'm going to to put something here in front of you and hope that you make the wrong decision. That can never be ascribed to God. Can he put something difficult in front of you with the purpose of uh, testing you? Yes. Does he do it in order to lead you astray? Absolutely not. And I think that's the, that's the line that we're trying to walk here. And there are other places too. Um, 1 Corinthians 7 where it talks about um, husband and wife not uh, abstaining from sexual intimacy for too long precisely so that they don't test one another or that they're not tempted 
uh, 1 Corinthians 10 where it talks about God not tempting or testing us beyond what we're able and also Galatians um, 6.1 where it talks about being careful that you, you yourself don't fall into temptation or testing when you're trying to restore someone else. All of these, all of these usages of the word had to do with the possible enticement to evil. Now notice something that we've already noticed about the use of Greek words. We noticed it with Son of God, now we're seeing it with tempting and testing. You cannot look up the meaning of a word, Greek or English or any other language for that matter, and simply say this is the one meaning that applies in every single passage. You just sort of plug it in like a variable, like it's some sort of mathematical equation. Language is much too complex for that. And any word has a range of meanings. You've got to be aware of the range of meanings. Now you can't do it like the Amplified Bible and just pick your, take, take your choice, like it doesn't matter. You've got to look at the context and say which connotation here is most appropriate in this context. And clearly, perosmos has a range of meanings. From uh, just testing someone to see if um, they're going to be obedient, to tribulation and discipline, all the way to the kind of testing that Satan would do, which is trying to lead you astray. Okay. Now we need to answer our question. Um, in view of what, this is from Doms, in view of what has been stated thus far, it is probable that the reference to prerosmos in the Lord's Prayer contains the idea of testing the genuineness of faith. However, there is reason to believe that there is also implicit the idea that such testing is through enticement to evil. Now, he's doing a both and here, and we need to ask ourselves how that works. Because ultimately, this is the only way I think you can understand why the, why the Lord's Prayer says, do not lead us into a testing or temptation. So, A more complex view, one in both, which both God and Satan are involved, is set forth in Luke 22, 31-32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's very reminiscent of Job. Where you've got God involved, you've got Satan involved. Satan is intending it for destruction. God is intending it for good. But still, there's a kind of testing that results. God is not intending it as an enticement to evil. That's Satan. That's Satan's intention in the whole matter. But nevertheless, the testing, the temptation is from God... Satan wants it to go one way, so from, from Satan's perspective, it is an enticement to evil. Satan is tempting in that respect precisely. And yet God is allowing this to happen. God is even um, causing it to happen. He's the one who sends, for example, the plagues and sickness upon Job. Uh, it's not Satan that sends that stuff. Yeah. That great scene in Star Wars where the dark side apostle it has Luke Skywalker looking out at the, the sea of ships in the battle and he's stirring up the hatred in Luke Skywalker testing him to see how far he can lead him into hatred yeah that was almost that would be a nice illustration of what Satan would do certainly yeah yeah um, and, and here is this is a very interesting passage once again going to the whole wilderness theme of more significance for our present purpose is Matthew 4.1 Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
They pay Rasmus of Jesus in the wilderness. Remembering that Jesus being in the wilderness was his own new Exodus event. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, corresponding to the 40 years of Israel in the wilderness. The Perosmus, or testing of Jesus in the wilderness, has the devil for its active source, but it is also due to the divine will. What God intended for your good, Satan intended for your harm. That's from, I mean, that's from the Old Testament. So, so Paul can Paul can even think of think about Second um, Corinthians uh, is it twelve where Paul speaks of the thorn in the flesh. And what the angel of Satan intended for Paul's destruction, God intends for his exaltation. So there can be two purposes at work in precisely the same um, precisely the same event, the same testing. God doing it for your good, Satan doing it in order to destroy you. So it can be a temptation. An enticement to evil, that's Satan's intention. You should never ascribe that to God. And yet, God himself is the one who can lead one into this kind of testing, as long as you don't see him as having an evil will behind it. And I really do wonder, when it says, do not lead us into temptation, if if the idea there isn't... um, don't lead us into the kind of testing and temptation that Jesus underwent by the devil. Maybe it's, maybe it's founded on a certain amount of humility, which is Adam and Eve didn't make it through that kind of temptation in their own wilderness or garden. Israel didn't make it through that sort of temptation. They, they were constantly falling and failing throughout their 40 years in the wilderness. It was one failure after the other. Jesus got it right in the wilderness as the new Adam and the new Israel. But don't presume... Be careful. When you enter into that kind of spiritual warfare, that kind of testing, it is dangerous. You flee from the devil and you ask God for his protection for that kind of testing, um, that kind of wilderness testing. Protect us from the devil. We're not going to go up in some sort of blithe way and and, and start fighting. We clearly do have to fight spiritual warfare and we're armed for it according to um, Ephesians 6 and yet this this strikes a very much a cautionary not, note. I think you just answered it for me at last because um, this is Christ giving us this prayer. He's really, it seems to be suddenly showing compassion for us knowing what he went through. Yes. Like he's saying, Father, be merciful. Yes. Yes. For mercy. Yes. And remember that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said... Lord, let this cup pass for me. Even Jesus himself asked to be spared the, 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 the testing. And, um, and then he said, going back to the Lord's Prayer, not my will, but your will be done. Which is interesting. That's the second petition. He was basically saying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't want... He was basically saying, don't lead me into the temptation, but your will be done. It was it's very interesting as a commentary. So the, the baptism experience in the wilderness, uh, the wilderness experience after baptism, and the Garden of Gethsemane are interesting bookends to the Lord's Prayer. One coming before, the other coming after, of Jesus actually living out that kind of testing and praying with compassion for his, uh, for his disciples that they would be spared that kind of, uh, that kind of testing and temptation, lest they fall. So should Perosmos be translated as temptation or test, either, both? Uh, I think you can see that when it says, lead us not into temptation, it seems to be, don't lead us into the kind of testing that might lead us to fall.
protect us from the evil one, protect us from Satan. We recognize his power, we recognize his strength. Um, Jesus himself success, was successful in the Garden of Gethsemane in the wilderness, but um, protect us from the evil one. And that then makes clear, uh, I think the translation of the second part of this petition, rescue us from the evil one. In the Greek it's rescue us from the evil and um, that's, that's awkward in Greek as it is in English. Ordinarily you'd say rescue us from evil without the article the in front of it. They have the article ha in front of it which suggests that um, it'd be like in English if you said the rich and the poor. If you say the rich, you mean the rich people or the rich one. If you say the poor, you mean the poor one, the poor man, the poor woman. If you just say poor, you know, it's... it's uh, it's not referring to people in general. So I think that's what's going on here. Rescue us from the evil probably means from the evil one. Not the rich one, not the poor one. The evil one. And indeed, that is a title for Satan. Um, in Matthew and Luke, I didn't put that up here, but there are a number of places in Matthew, for example, where uh, Satan is actually referred to as, um, as the evil one. So I think, that it's, I think it really is referring to Jesus' own temptation in the wilderness where he, he himself... Um, confronted the evil one, was led into testing and was successful. So, um, let's conclude with a few quotes from Wright. Uh, he's a good, good, good person to uh, end on. To say, lead us not into temptation does not, of course, mean that God himself causes people to be tempted. And let's remember our whole discussion here. If, if by tempted you mean to entice to evil, that's true. James says that very clearly. And yet God himself is the source of testing. It has rather three levels of meaning. First, it means let us escape the great tribulation, the great testing that is coming on all the world. Um, and that may go back to the whole New Exodus thing as well. That there's this sense of great, a great testing that comes before you're allowed to get into the promised land. Next, it means do not let us be led into temptation that we will be unable to bear. I suggested that. And finally, it means enable us uh, to pass safely through the testing of our faith. Notice that we've got what Wright is essentially doing, especially in these uh, second two things, he's, he's, doing, he's actually playing on the several meanings of perazzo. Perazzo has to do with temptation. Perazzo has to do with just positive testing. And Wright is essentially saying... You know, both of those dimensions are there. Enables to pass safely through the positive testing. Don't lead us into the kind of temptation that we will fall or fail at. And there was, of course, the great notion of that tribulation at the end of time before the coming of Christ. Help us to get through that one in particular. That's the great testing. Help us especially to get through that one when, um, when Satan is at his uh, worst. Well, I think what he's doing is just—I think what he's doing is just elaborating on the different means of perazzo. He's trying to recognize that there's a kind of testing that's from God and that's positive, help us to get safely through that. There's a kind of testing that Satan is using as an enticement for evil. Uh, don't let us go through that kind of testing because we don't want to fall. And there's a recognition that the great testing at the end of uh, history is the, is the biggest danger of all. Help us get through that one uh, or maybe even avoid that one. Because that's, 
Uh, Jesus himself says that you know in those days even the elect would fall if it were possible. So I think what Wright is doing is just he's doing it, he's doing the both and again, isn't he? He's saying there's this present dimension of it in several ways, but it also points to the great testing right before the end. Um, the labor pangs before the birth at the end. You know, to think of the image in First Thessalonians 4, that transition in labor, where it's at its very worst right before um, the joy in the morning. So, so Wright says, and you can't pray these prayers from a safe distance. You can only pray them when you're saying yes to God's kingdom coming to birth within you. So it's already begun in Jesus. Now it's also coming to birth within us as we anticipate its final external coming as well. As Mary was called to do, when you were saying yes to the call to follow Jesus to Gethsemane, even when you don't understand why, when you were saying yes to the vocation to go to the place of pain, to share it in the name of Jesus, and to hold that pain prayerfully in the presence of God, or of the God who wept in Gethsemane and died on Calvary, in the hope and promise that God will triumph over fear, will deliver us from evil, and will bring in his kingdom at last. Prayer that will make it through the wilderness to the promised land by the power of God's Spirit um, and be protected from um, the evil one um, in the meantime. Okay, any final, final questions or comments on this, this final petition? The, um, the Lord's Prayer then becomes a prayer that the kingdom and the will of God and the name of God, which is perfectly hallowed in heaven, that heavenly reality which has begun in Christ, will one day, and soon Lord willing, come to earth. And in the meantime, that we as the people of God will anticipate that reality as we eat our daily bread, as we partake of the Eucharistic bread, um, as we forgive other people, um, and as we are tempted and tested day by day. Let the world see, let other Christians see anticipations of that kingdom, even in us, in the present, as we wait patiently for God's future to come. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray for us. Now, Father, we thank you for the hope that we have, and we thank you for the privilege that we have to, to call you Father, to call you Abba. We thank you that you have promised us a grand inheritance, the promised land, a new creation, resurrection bodies, and we thank you for the anticipations of that, even in the present. So we pray that you will open our eyes and help us to see, help us to live in such a way that others can see uh, the coming of your kingdom among us. We pray that you will do that by the power of your Spirit and help us, Lord, to pray with greater fervor and with greater understanding when we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.